All right. Um, it is Mother's Day. I do want to do a Mother's Day focused message. And I want to title this, if you want to look for it later, on Sermon Audio. I'm going to title this, Mothers Shape Lives. Uh, join me, if you would, in Genesis chapter 27. This is a story that should be well familiar to you. This is from the life account of Jacob. But um, there are a couple of main characters in this story, actually more than even two, but the two that I want to focus on are Jacob and his mother, Rebecca. I'm reading from verse 1. It's a fairly long section, so hang in there as I read it. Uh, What I'm looking for here in this portion of Scripture, just as a uh, kind of a touch point for what is more a word of exhortation this morning than it is um, a hard-line Bible study. So I'm not going to be doing as much teaching as I am encouraging and exhorting this morning. But um, there are some elements in this story in terms of who Jacob was as a young man and how he got to have the characteristics that were defining his life at that point in his life. Now, we know later after this portion in chapter 27, the Lord intervenes in Jacob's life and does an amazing, life-changing work in him and begins the work of reforming him and reshaping him from the inside out, just like the Lord does with each one of us. But chapter 27 is in the Bible for a reason. Before the Lord's intervention, we're meant to understand the interesting and significant dynamics that go on in the exchanges between a mother and her child that result in the formation of a character. And that's the story here. So let me read from verse 1 of Genesis 27. When Isaac was old, and of course Isaac is Jacob's father and Rebekah's husband, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so they could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old and do not know the day of my death. It's essentially Isaac saying, I think I'm probably dying soon. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, Go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So it's just an interesting part of the story to me. It has nothing to do with what I'm going to be talking about today, but um, this is a man that knows he's dying and he has a priority in his heart, which is he wants to pass on a blessing to his eldest son, Esau, But uh, he's got another priority in his heart as well. He wants one more really good food meal. You know, one more good thing to eat. Some meat. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat. 
so that he may bless you before he dies. Now, right up until that last line, there's nothing really particularly wrong with the story. Um, she knows that Esau's being sent out to hunt some wild game for Isaac, and she has this idea to take two young goats from the flock that belongs to them and prepare them. This could have been, it wasn't, but it could have been at this point in the story, just her realizing it, it might be difficult for Esau to catch something. He might not be successful in the hunt. The, her husband might not get the food that he really desires. And it might just be a, a compassionate thing on her part to want to provide the, you know, the longed for last meal, so to speak, of her husband. But it's this last line in verse 10, and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. What she's doing here is we all understand the story. There's a a final blessing that a patriarchal father in that culture and in those days would pass on to his children and the greatest blessing would go to the eldest son in the family. The eldest son clearly was Esau, Jacob being the younger of the two sons. And she has a desire to steal that blessing from her oldest son and to give it instead to her youngest son. Now, why would any mother steal from one son and give it to another? Why would she do that? Because she really liked the younger son and she didn't really like the older son that much. It was, the, the story's kind of set up like uh, each parent has their favorite. Right? So Jacob's favorite was the, the hunter of the family the outdoorsman, the man's man, the, the catcher of game. And the mother's favorite was, as he's described elsewhere in this portion of God's word, he was a man of the tents, Jacob. He, he didn't really go out on adventures like his older brother Esau did. He just hung around mom and was what we would call kind of a, a mother's boy or a mama's boy. And uh, because he was, whose influence do you think each was most soaking up? Because parents influence their children. Parents shape the lives of the young ones that they raise. And so Esau was no doubt being more primarily influenced by his father Isaac and Jacob being more primarily influenced by his mother uh, Rebekah. Now, the story goes on. Verse 11, Jacob raises a, it's half question and half of a, half of a um, kind of like argument because he's not sure this is all going to work the way his mother's laying it out. Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. And I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. And I shall seem, you know, when he brings the food in, and apparently, you know, from the, the account of, of Isaac describing his eyesight as dim, he couldn't see that well any longer, but he would likely reach out to touch his son Esau as he brought the food in. Perhaps my father will fear me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing, meaning he'll find out that I'm not Esau. I'm, I understand you want me to pretend to be Esau, mom, but 
If I go in and he touches me, he's going to tell without the hairy arms and, and whatnot um, that I'm not who I'm portraying myself to be. In verse 13, his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. Now, one of the interesting things, backstory, I have to at least mention it. In the big picture of God's eternal purposes, which of these two young men, Jacob and Esau, did the Lord intend to bless with the double portion blessing? Jacob. Because Jacob is going to become the father of his covenant people, the Lord's covenant people, Israel. From Jacob are going to spring the 12 tribes of Israel through his 12 sons. So the Lord is at work here behind the scenes, sovereignly. But that doesn't mean that on a human level, those that were causing it to happen in this particular way were honoring the Lord in their actions and doing what was pleasing in every sense in the Lord's sight. So his mother is essentially saying, this is what we're going to do, Jacob. We're going to deceive your father. Now, Jacob's name, as most of you are familiar, has a, has a meaning. And his name means literally heel catcher. And this is a reference back to the moment of his birth and the circumstances of his birth because the, the twins, they were twins. They were what we would call fraternal twins, meaning they, they weren't identical twins. Obviously, one was hairy, one was smooth. There's some difference there. Um, but they were born at the same time. And as Esau came out first, Jacob was holding the heel of his brother as he came out. And he was called heel catcher. And the meaning behind that wasn't just, oh, isn't this cute? But the meaning behind that was he was trying to take his brother's place from the womb. And here he is, now years later, trying to take his brother's place. And he has his mother's, not just support, but he has his mother's training, planning, She's the mastermind behind this plot to steal the double portion. So, after his mother put his fears to rest, which is, if someone's getting cursed, I'll step in and I'll take the brunt of the curse so that you don't have to pay the price for deceiving your father if he does discover it. She's thinking, I know how to fool him. And there is no way he's going to discover it. So verse 14, so he went and took them, and this is the two young goats. He went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, my father. Now why, why Isaac didn't recognize the difference in their voices, I don't know. Maybe he just 
was not paying close attention. Maybe he smelled the food and his focus was elsewhere, but he didn't recognize the difference in their voices. He said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Meaning, usually a hunt takes time and uh, you've come back with prepared food much quicker than I expected. He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Now what has he just done? What has Jacob just done? He's taken the name of the Lord as God in vain, number one, and number two, he's lying. So he, this is a double whammy in terms of how he is actively deceiving his father. Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and I'm guessing at this point, Isaac could tell there's something's not right here. I just don't know exactly what it is. So Jacob went near to his father, to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice. So, okay, so he does recognize. There's, he sounds more like Jacob than he does Esau. But the hands are the hands of Esau. Why? Because of the goat skin. I mean, he must have been a really hairy man. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And at this point, um, his father Jacob goes ahead and blesses him with the, the, the double portion firstborn blessing. And it's a non-retractable blessing. It's not like, okay, once he finds out, and he will find out, he's going to find out that he's just been deceived because uh, what's going to happen as soon as he finishes the meal is Esau's going to come in with his meal. And uh, at that point, Jacob is apologetic to his son Esau, uh, but he essentially says, I can't take back what I have just proclaimed and what I've just declared. So the Lord gets his way in terms of his sovereign purposes, but I do believe and think there was a better way to get from point A to point B than this way. Now, there's so much in this story, but I just want to focus on the two key characters in terms of my focus this morning, and that is uh, Jacob and um, his mother, Rebecca, and the influence she had on him, the shaping influence. So from this point on in the story, Jacob goes on and lives his life and he moves away from his family at a certain point and he's living as an adult. And what you see happening for most of his life story until the Lord has to intervene with a, a, a dramatic spiritual encounter where he literally wrestles with the person of the Lord himself uh, all night long and the Lord uses that to begin to transform his heart and his life. Um, up until that point, what we see is Jacob is regularly manipulating, maneuvering, lying, deceiving, and even, again, taking the name of the Lord in vain in order to accomplish the things that he feels is important to accomplish. And my point is, my question is, where did he learn all of that? And it, what's, what's clear here is that he learned it from his mother. Now, 
Mothers shape the lives. And when I say the lives, of course, you, you know, you, you shape the physical life of your child just by your contribution of DNA. You, you shape the, the physical development of your child by how you raise them, how you nurture them, how you nourish them. Um, but more important, of course, than that is that you shape the character of your child. You, you shape their internal development by an imprinting heart and character-shaping influence upon them. Now, there's two elements to this. I'm going to call them an active element and a passive element. The active element you should be fully aware of as a mother and make constant use of, daily use of, regular use of, and that is you train them, you teach them, you literally disciple them. And when you are doing that with with clear spiritual perspective, you are at your very best as a mother. Your active, intentional shaping of who they are as a person because of your instruction and your discipleship, discipleship folding in, even correction and necessary uh, experiences of punishment. But there's a passive element to how you shape the character of your children as well. It's how you shape them by default just because you are who you are. You're not necessarily in, and it's just not even possible, practically speaking, to shape them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year by constant instruction in the Bible. That should be a, a, a big element of how you shape your child, but, but those moments are somewhat limited to certain portions of the day. The rest of the day, the rest of the time you spend with your child, you're still shaping them, but now you're shaping them passively. You're not even necessarily thinking, okay, what I am saying right now is going to affect and influence the way they speak to others later. What I'm thinking right now is going to shape and influence how they think later because we're going to be talking about that. But I'm not necessarily thinking that I'm shaping them. I'm just having conversation with them. Or what I'm feeling right now and in the expression of my emotions, I am shaping how they will develop as emotional people themselves. So, what's the extent of this shaping influence? Well, from the very first breath your child takes in this world until they leave your home, and then if you have a healthy, somewhat at least healthy relationship with them, there's going to be continuing influence even after they leave your home. But the primary influence takes place early on. What we call in our culture, and it's a, it's a good terminology, it's a good concept, We call them the formative years. Those early years where characters are being formed for the very first time and then solidified into the kind of person they're going to be when they become an adult. And these are, and let me just give you a short list of possibilities because these. This is the list that every mother-child relationship passes through. Is your child going to turn out to be characterized as a generous person or as a selfish person? 
Are they going to be, be a, a kind person or a rude person? Are they going to be trusting or fearful in the way they live their own lives, even as adults? Are they going to be prejudiced or open-hearted and friendly toward others who are not like them? Are they going to be hospitable or ungracious toward others? Are they going to be thoughtful in their interaction with all others or inconsiderate and thinking first and foremost about themselves? And then, of course, the biggest one of all is, are they going to, are they going to develop into a lover of God or a lover of themselves? So Rebecca was a woman of God. That's what I want you to know and understand this morning. She was not an unbeliever. She did not hate the Lord. But Rebecca had what we call character flaws. And Rebecca passed some good things onto her son Jacob. He didn't turn out to be a monster. Even before the Lord's intervention, saving intervention in his life, he didn't turn out to be a monster. He was a pretty good man. But he had significant character flaws. And the point of this story is one person, one generation imprinting their character flaws on another generation. It's a mixed inheritance in that sense. Passing some good things on, passing some not good, some not so good things on. Let me give you a couple of other examples from scripture. These are shorter um, but they'll make the same essential point. Second Chronicles. Chapter 22. I'll read from verse 1. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. So a king has just died. Uh, the, the, um, the nation needs to choose a replacement. They make Ahaziah king in his place. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had killed all the older sons. I mean, he's the only one left, the only one qualified in terms of bloodline. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. Um, probably a little too young to become king. We're going to see in a moment, there's another exceptional circumstance where a young man is appointed to become king at eight years old. But, you know, eight, 22, eight's worse than 22, obviously, but they're both too young because character is still in the formation stage, certainly at eight, but even at 22. And so the story goes on. He was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. That's not a good thing, by the way. When a king is appointed to reign, and then you're, you're kind of looking at his story from the end to the beginning, and it says, and he reigned one year. Why is that not a good thing? In other words, he wasn't particularly blessed by the Lord to reign for a significant length of time, and there are reasons for that. He, he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. 
the granddaughter of Omri. We don't have time to look at the backstory. Omri was a really bad king, evil king. And this is now describing this young, young 22-year-old king. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. Ahab, really bad king, evil king. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. And the question that's hanging there at that point in the verse is, why did he walk in the ways of the house of Ahab? For his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. Short story. Short story, but a really sad story. His mother was his counselor. Is it a good thing for a mother to be a counselor to her son or her daughter? Yes, it's absolutely a good thing. Unless the substance of the counsel is evil or displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. So verse 4 He's following his mother's counsel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done for after the death of his father, they were his counselors to his undoing. So he was listening to his mother as his primary counselor, but he was also listening to other wicked voices that each had their own political agenda that were speaking to him to do things in the wrong way in order to accomplish the purposes they wanted accomplished. All right, now let's look at a couple of good examples. This one I just mentioned. Uh, this is now the book of Second Kings, chapter 22. An exceptional, very too young man, but it's a special circumstance. It's unavoidable. We're going to just read first couple of verses of the chapter, Second Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. David was not his immediate father, but was his ancestor. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Josiah was a shining example of a godly king and an exceptional one in that regard in uh, Judah's history. And we're not told here directly in the text like we were told in a negative sense in the other story that I just read that his, the other one, the, the mother, was a counselor to him in doing wickedly. All we see here is that his mother is specifically named and what we see is the result of what happens with her eight-year-old son. How is it that an eight-year-old son could possibly do what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walk in all the way of a godly king that preceded him, his ancestor David, unless his mother was powerfully and greatly influential in imprinting the right kind of shaping influence upon his heart. And then one last one from the New Testament I think everyone's familiar with the book of 2 Timothy, and this is Timothy's upbringing that's in focus here. As Paul is writing this word of encouragement to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, reading from verse 3. I thank God, this is Paul writing, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. Paul and Timothy had a 
exceptionally close relationship. Paul himself described it as a relationship like a father to a son. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now this is the best kind of shaping influence that we can possibly strive for. Um, A sincere faith in his grandmother, a sincere faith in his mother, and now Paul is seen and he mentions them intentionally, purposefully, no doubt, they had a strong influence on Timothy's development of a similar kind of sincere faith. All right, um, I want to just take a couple of minutes then based on these biblical examples, a couple of what we would call negative ones and a couple of positive ones. And I want to share with you just a couple of examples from my own story. Some of these things I've shared before, a couple of them I've never shared before. Uh, This is, I I was thinking back about my mother. My mother is not alive any longer. But, uh, and, and sadly, my mother never came to know the Lord. But um, I was thinking about her and thinking about the shaping influence she had on my character before the Lord intervened in my life when I was 24 years old, laid his hand upon me and began to just reshape me, reform me, rework me from the inside out. And um, even though my mother never knew the Lord and, of course, never intentionally discipled me in the ways of the Lord, there were some good elements about what I gained from her, but there were some uh, elements that uh, were not good and were not healthy, and the Lord had to uh, specifically deal with. Um, My point in sharing this story is not just I want to talk about myself. I think you guys know me pretty well. I don't like really talking about myself that much. Uh, You know, some people do. I mean, I know some people that if you give them the time, they'll, they'll never stop talking about themselves but I'm not one to really talk a lot about myself but occasionally um, it's on my heart to share some element from my own story and hope that it'll be uh, an exhortation and encouragement for you and in the midst of your story Um, my point is this though Rebecca was a woman of God and she was imprinting her influence on her son some of which was good and some of which was not good. The problem with Rebecca was that she wasn't able to recognize her own weak areas and take steps to avoid passing that on to her son. You are going to, as a mother, pass on a spiritual inheritance to your children, and that is this shaping influence that I'm talking about, the effect you have on their character development, their character formation, I just want to encourage you and exhort you, pass on your best qualities to them. Don't pass on the others. And you can actually successfully accomplish that as long as you're aware of yourself. As long as you're not functioning in personal blind spots as you're raising your children. As long as you're willing to take a good, honest look at your own character and recognize what is strong about me, what is worth passing on to my children, and what is weak about me that 
Maybe I can take steps to ensure they won't go down the same pathway that I went down to have this element of my character formed in the way that it was. So the first and foremost thing, and I have shared this before, my mother raised me as an atheist. She trained me in in the philosophies of atheism. I mean, actively discipled me in atheism, so much so that when I was a, a teenager, I took personal delight in engaging what Christians I knew in my school relationships and uh, seeing if I could successfully dismantle their worldview. And, I, you know, to this day, I regret and am ashamed of having that kind of impact and effect on some of the ones that I had conversations with. And of course, the Lord had to intervene to change that core perspective of my heart of there is no God to coming to know and to see and to understand and believe in and have a relationship with the one true and living God. Uh, That wasn't her only big influence on me, though. My mother was a woman that she struggled with uh, many fears. And some of those fears she passed on to me without realizing she did. And some of those fears she was aware of in a way that I'm describing and I'm, I'm encouraging for you as mothers so that you can conscientiously take steps to not pass those fears on to your children. The biggest fear my mom did pass on to me, and it's only by the amazing grace of God that I don't live dominated by this fear today, and that is uh, the fear of social rejection. The fear of what other people will think about me. Uh, We all care, and we should, in terms of what other people think about us. But if you know me very well, you know that it's just not a dominating influence in my life. But at one point, it was. And the circumstance in which that developed for me was that, and and I have shared this story, some of you will remember some of the details, I'm not going to go into a lot of the story, but at eight years old, I... I developed a, and it's a genetic thing, a DNA thing. My sister had it, but much smaller than what happened in my life. And that is, um, I developed a condition called alopecia, where you lose all your hair. So yeah, I'm bald to this day, but it's primarily because um, I, at eight years old, I lost all of my hair. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a thing where your own immune system is overactive. And uh, when it doesn't have any diseases to fight off, it just looks for unimportant parts of the physical body to attack because it just has to be doing something. And hair is one of the targets of that particular condition. So I lost my hair at eight years old. I'm bald. And obviously, from a social stigma standpoint, and, you know, the society's changed somewhat. You know, I don't think it would be as big a deal today as it was back then. But back then, it was a big deal. There were a few bald men in the world, and they were famous. Um, some of you are too young to know these names, but, you know, Yul Brenner was a bald actor, played in the, uh, um, this, the um, gosh, what's that? No, no. Yeah, he was in both of those. I'm thinking of the Western. What's the Western? Magnificent Seven. Thank you. The original Magnificent Seven, great movie. Uh, I recommend that you watch it. 
Anyway, Ewell Brenner was one. Uh, Telly Savalas, who played Kojak on TV, he was bald. There, was a, there were one or two others. But generally speaking, in our society back then, it was like, uh, you know, bald people are weird. You know, so it's just strange. We don't want, we don't want that. And for, when you're eight years old, it's even weirder. And so uh, going to school, it was like, a, you know, it was like a stigma kind of thing. And you'll be a target of bullying and, and you know, uh, ridicule, all of those things. So what my mom did, she was afraid that I would be rejected in the society of kids that I was part of in public school. And so she decided, she had this brilliant idea. It was not brilliant. She had this brilliant idea. I will buy him a hat. And I will put that hat on his head and send him to school. As if, you know, the rest of the kids would just go, oh, yeah, he's just wearing a hat. No big deal. So what happened was for the years between eight years old and when I graduated from junior high, I wore a hat to school every day. And then I would come home and I'd take off my hat. Now, what do you think happened to me at school for those years? Yeah, kids, you know, kids being kids, some of them not being well trained, well imprinted, their characters not being well formed by their parents. You know, they'd come and knock my hat off and then I would be like ashamed of what I looked like and then I'd have to grab my hat and hurriedly put it back on my head and I'd be getting into fights with those kids. It was just a mess. What my mother should have done is what? She should have just said, look, you know, it's something you can't control. You're going to go to school. It's going to be tough for three days. But they'll get used to it. You'll get used to it. And then things will just be normal from that point forward. Other than the fact that you don't have hair, everything will be normal. But because of her fear of me being rejected, what could have been and would have been a three-day problem turned into a 12, you know, not 12-year, maybe 10-year problem of daily dealing with this kind of interaction with other young people. My point is, it was her concern, her love for me, but it wasn't wise and it was based in fear. And as a result, that same fear was imprinted onto my character. And then at a certain point as a young man, the Lord gave me the grace to just realize, hey, you know, what am I doing here? And so I took it off and I had a few hairs and so I shaved the rest of those off and I just began to function as a bald person. And it took me, took me about a week to get used to just being in public as I actually am. And then after that, it was no big deal. And then after that, I actually learned to like it. And I do prefer it now. If you gave me the option, you can have a full head of hair or you can stay as you are. I would just stay as I am. It's easier. And, you know, if you don't like the way it looks, I don't care. You know, it's not that big a deal. So my point is, for the mothers, how are you... How are you influencing and affecting the character, the perspective, the attitude of your children toward things that are blind spots for you? Here's another example. My mother had a fear of water. She had a bad experience swimming when she was a young girl. Uh, her, her mother took her to the beach one day and she, you know, a wave washed over her and she gulped down some water and she, she was afraid she was drowning. She didn't. She was fine, but it created a fear in her that from that day forward, as a little girl, she never went into the water again for the rest of her life. 
She was was deathly afraid of water. But she did at least see that that was a problem for her, not something she should pass on to me. And so what she did, and I was about six years old, seven years old, somewhere in that range, she sent me to swimming summer school one year where she wanted me to not have the burden of her fear of water. And I still remember the very first day, I don't think they do this anymore, but the first day of summer swimming school, the coach just took me by my shorts and threw me into the deep end. And I was coming from a background of being afraid of the water because of my mother's influence. Thankfully, I didn't, you know, I didn't drown. And I learned to love swimming that summer. By the end of that summer, I loved it. And so that was a case where my mother saw the weak spot in herself and took necessary steps to ensure she wasn't passing that on to me. Uh, My mother had, and this is, by the way, amazingly, the number one fear as they they pull people and they, they rank, what are people most afraid of? Biblically, it's supposed to be you're afraid to die. That's the true number one fear. But yes, fear of public speaking is the most common fear that people have. And my mother had that fear. And here I am now, a public speaker. How did I go from the influence of that fear to where I am today? Well, obviously the Lord had something to do with that. But my mother wanted, like the swimming school, to help me to not be afraid of what she was afraid of. So she enrolled me in an organization. I don't even know if it still exists anymore. It was called Toastmasters. And it was, uh, it was a public speaking club where you know, people would come together for lunches and you would get some training and how to do this, how to give a speech. And then the people would take turns giving speeches in public just for the purpose of overcoming that fear and and kind of learning how to function in communication in a public setting. I hated it. Here I was standing up in front of those people, I must have been 10 years old, wearing a hat. And I just despised it with all of my being. I tried and tried to talk my mother out of sending me each time to the Toastmaster meeting. But looking back, it was for my best. And she was actually doing a good thing there and a wise thing. And it was good that she refused to listen to my pleas. (laughs) It was good for my character development to learn not to be afraid, to learn to just embrace the moment. And it's not the entire story of why I'm a pastor now and a Bible teacher and a public speaker now, but it's certainly an influential part of how the Lord began to change that in me. In the same way, she, was, she, was, she had a fear of heavy responsibilities and she didn't want to pass that on to me, so she enrolled me in an organization. Again, I don't know if it still exists today. It was called Junior Achievement, where they teach you to, to form a company like an adult and take responsibility for that company. And I hated the idea of going there too. I did not want to go, but I went because she forced me to. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me in my young life. 
because I learned exactly that. I learned how to take responsibility. I learned so many things that then translated into my young adult life that I would never have learned had I just sat home, which is what I was preferring to do. Last thing I want to mention is, and I have talked about this before, but I never um, hesitate to share it again, and that is my mother had a, she was a reader. She was a lover of books. She was, she, you know, in the evenings, instead of watching TV, she would watch a little bit of TV, but she, she liked to just crack open a good book and read it. And she was always reading and in her free time. And she passed that on to me. She trained me to love books. Uh, you, you might remember the story of, of me telling you that she would take me every Saturday morning to the public library. Every Saturday morning. It was like that was our thing. And she, would, she even made kind of a game out of it where she, she encouraged me to, to check out as many books as I could possibly check out. The only rule was I had to read every book that I actually checked out. And so the game and the, the challenge from my perspective is how many can I get accomplished this week? And she would reward me based upon the number of books that I successfully checked out and actually read from cover to cover to where you know, I, I remember before the practice stopped and I, I grew bit past this phase, but I was checking out stacks. They're children's books, they're young, young people's books, but I was stack, checking out a stack like that and reading each one before the week ended. Um, do you think that had anything to do with what I'm doing today and the Lord's plans and purposes for my life? She was imprinting something on me. She was, she was training something into me she didn't see where it was going to lead, but she knew the value of reading and the value of, of how it shaped a young mind and, and the nimbleness of, of a brain. And so um, her influence in doing that was, was a huge uh, benefit in my life. All right, so all I'm asking you to do this morning as mothers is to consider this concept, that you shape the lives of your children. You're not the only life-shaping influence. Um, There's some big ones that also have an influence. Obviously, their father's going to have an influence. Their their friends, their siblings are going to have an influence. And nowadays, uh, far too much, the internet is going to have an influence. And Hollywood's going to have an influence. And television's going to have an influence. But you have the first influence. You have the biggest influence. And in that sense, you have the most important influence. And I'm asking you to just take stock as you're raising your children and become aware of what is worth passing on to them and then take steps to pass those things on to your children as a, as a valued spiritual inheritance. And then take stock of those things that if, if you're really being honest with yourself, you want to say, I don't want my child to be a clone of me. I don't want them to be like me in this characteristic. And then, like my mother sent me to swimming school or sent me to Toastmasters, and even though I didn't want to go, there were things that were changed in me because at least she had the foresight to say, he should be like this rather than like me. Let's pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for the opportunity on Mother's Day to think about your great purpose in the mother-child relationship. Do pour out your amazing grace on each one of the mothers here this morning. Grant them grace for the long-term assignment that you have given to them. Grant them wisdom and discernment in evaluating their own character and then help them, Lord, to pass on that which is most pleasing in your sight and then to guard them 
and guard themselves from passing on that which is not pleasing to you. Thank you, Father. Amen.